So it's a, a great time of the year to be thinking about planting and seeds, and uh, we have our gardens, or as I was driving into Hamilton today, um, I see the fields that were refreshed with the tremendous rain we had, and uh, so these are things we can relate to. Um, and so Jesus tells us the story about uh, someone who goes out to plant seed, not the way that we do in a North American context. Uh, it's not with a done with a tractor and a sophisticated farm implements that leave the seeds planted neatly in furrows with the exact distance between each seed. Now, in the New Testament times, the farmer would have a bag of seed. He would bury his hand deep into it, uh, take the seed, and then fling it, and in a rhythmic fashion, just scatter it as he walked along. In the story that Jesus tells, some seed falls along the path, and the birds come and eat it until there's nothing less. And I had to snicker as I heard the birds in the gospel reading today. Um, and then others, other seed falls into the stony soil and the, the rocky ground so that it first sprouted, it looked really promising, but when the sun came out, the plants wilted and died because their roots were dried up due to a lack of soil. Other seed fell among weeds that overtook the plot of land, and, and gradually they choked the good seed, and finally, though, finally there's some seed that fell in good soil where it produced desired fruit a hundred times, uh, sixty times, or even thirty times. But I suggest to you that, that there's a danger that we read this parable in a very individual, individualist way that we can actually miss the point of the passage. And then the application would become that we need to receive the seed properly. That is, we have to make sure that the soil of our hearts is prepared and will be blessed. And of course, that, that's true. But in the end, it's about reading the Bible more frequently um, and something that we need to do do because we have to, not necessarily because we want to, and besides, we can actually read for the wrong reasons. We can read because we want to score brownie points with God. We can read because we want to win an argument with someone else. We can read it because we just like to know facts about the Bible. And furthermore, it's a reading that, that forces us to turn inward to ask, what kind of soil are we? And given that in this parable, the soil only gets one chance, there is very little grace and a whole lot of guilt. Once the birds pick away the seed, it's gone. Once the plant is wilted, it's dead. Once the plant is choked out, it shrivels and dies. And then the moral of the story would be, you've only got one chance, don't mess it up. And the bottom line is, try harder. But I, I want to propose another reading this morning. And I am not saying it's the only way to read this passage, but I do trust that it respects the flow or the argument that we find in the gospel itself. In this section, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. In fact, chapter 13 uh, is made up of a number of parables that tell us what the kingdom is like, why it matters, how to enter it, how it grows, what God is up to in the world. And so it's good news all about the kingdom of God, the way the world, the world the way God really wanted it. And Jesus is clear that the message of the kingdom is being heard. Now, when the disciples question Jesus about his teaching methodology, they say, why do you speak to the people in parables? Because you see, parables are these pithy statements or stories that have a much deeper meaning than, than what you hear on the surface. And it's kind of like what we would say, why don't you just speak English? 
Uh, speak clearly so that people will understand what you're trying to say. I mean, look at all the people. You've drawn such a large crowd. You're losing them by your style. But Jesus' response is telling. He reminds them that the message he's preaching is all about the kingdom of heaven, which is Matthew's way of talking about the kingdom of God. And then he gives them a bit of a history lesson. The disciples have been given access to the secret of the kingdom. Others haven't. And at first glance, that might seem a bit unfair. But when, then, then Jesus unpacks this a bit more. And he tells them that even though there's a crowd that seems to be all ears, they don't get what Jesus is talking about. And so he reminds them that what's going on at that very moment is precisely what happened when the prophets were sent to Israel centuries earlier. Israel failed to understand the message of the kingdom of God. And to support his claim, Jesus turns to the prophet Isaiah, and particularly to that unsettling passage in chapter 6, where Isaiah's been ushered into the throne room, he's been overwhelmed by the holiness of God, he's been made to feel his brokenness, and then he's been healed by that burning coal. And once his lips have been purified, Isaiah responds to God's question, who can I send, or who will go for us? And he answers, here I am, send me. And you might have thought that God would have said something like, oh, great, thanks for volunteering, let's get started, here's the plan. But no, Yahweh has some rather discouraging news. The people might have ears, but they're not going to listen. They may have eyes, but they're not going to really see what's going on. Their hearts are going to be like a stone. So not exactly encouraging message for a teacher. Try to preach like that. And yet, in the unfolding of God's redemptive purposes, in the, in the mystery of, of the outworking of his restoration project, Israel does exactly what Yahweh had prophesied. They rejected the message of the kingdom of God. And so the questions for us are, how and why would they do that? And if the lengthy quotation from Isaiah is the biblical theological context for understanding the response of those who were listening to Jesus' message of the kingdom— then we would do well to take a moment and remind ourselves of Israel's story. And it's important because these very same forces are at work in our day. And the danger could be that we just follow that same pathway as Israel, either in Isaiah's time or in Jesus' time. You see, in Isaiah's time, Israel preferred to align themselves with the values and the goals of other kingdoms. They caved in to the perennial siren calls, the, the challenges to the kingdom of God. They consistently wanted to live by the playbook of the pagan nations because they thought that's what the good life looked like. And God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet who reminded them of their history, of their identity as the people of God. But they covered their eyes, they plugged their ears, they turned up the volume of the enticing music of the pagan anti-Yahweh, anti-kingdom lifestyle, and they swayed to the rhythms that promised them a good life. And in the end, Israel and the time of the prophets were led in exile. They were thrown out of the promised land. They lost everything that they had naively believed to represent the good life, and they ended up in Babylon, slaves under the rule of a pagan empire. It was a lose-lose situation. The false dreams of the rival kingdoms could not deliver. It was a, a nightmare for them, not a dream at all. And it was something that eventually drove them to their knees. 
And as they prayed, Yahweh remembered them and brought them back to the land again. And of course, what Jesus is doing, he's telling his contemporaries that they need to understand that God has sent his son to call them back to God. And when seen in this light, the word of God is a powerful call to people in Jesus' time and our own to listen to the message of the kingdom of God, to see reality as it truly is, to discern the fake news all around us, and then to live fruitful, productive lives, lives that are in tune with what God is up to in the world. And so this is a parable about the kingdom, and what we want to consider is kingdom fruitfulness and the challenge of its everyday rivals. There are rival systems, empires, and kingdoms today that compete for our allegiance in very subtle ways. And the parable of the sower teaches us this powerfully, and Jesus mentions four of them. But I want to begin by noticing the generosity of the sower because it tells us something important about the nature of the kingdom and, and who God is, what God is like. The message of the kingdom is free. And, there, and there's, there's so much good news everywhere, even along paths, among rocks and weeds. Handfuls are, are freely scattered everywhere. The sower's not concerned that he might waste a few seeds. He's not counting out each one. No, it's, it's, it's their seed everywhere. It's kind of like coloring outside the lines because you want to be sure that nothing's left out inside. And in his explanation of the parable, Jesus even says the message of the kingdom of God has been sown in their hearts, not just in one ear out the other. No, no, it's gone deeper than that. So, you know, God's not stingy. He's not tight-fisted. He's open-handed. And people have heard. But in the first scenario, the seed falls on the path. Well, a path is a place where people walk. It's where we go from one place to another. Um, you know, we're not standing still. It's a place of activity. And you can see it in your lawn where, where if you walk this particular path all the time, you know, things just, just die there. Nothing has a chance to grow. And so today we, we might say it's, it's, it's a busy street. And so I suggest that the first and perhaps the most common rival to the kingdom of God is actually busyness. Busyness. Activity. So in other words, we agree we should listen. Uh, we, we, we show up. We want to hear what Jesus has to say. We do the church thing because it's important. But then busyness takes over. The message makes some kind of an impact. It's, it, we, we really want to respond to the message of, of the kingdom. We have good intentions, but then life gets busy, and we have other priorities. And Jesus says, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their hearts. It's sown in the heart, but it's not understood, not processed. It doesn't take roots. So the evil one comes and snatches it away. He steals it. When we suddenly wake up to the fact that the evil one has stolen away the good seed of the kingdom, it can hit us in ways that we might not have imagined. The emptiness of our lives will shock us. When we finally stop running, we realize that it's pointless and we're just tired. It's discouraging, but that's exactly what Jesus wants you to understand. What is it that we live for? And I can't help but wonder if one of the lessons we should be learning during this time of pandemic is precisely to realign our priorities with the message of the kingdom of God. 
We live in a world that puts so much pressure on parents, on families, on kids, on youth to, to get themselves involved in so many things. But COVID-19 shut down so much of it. No public events. Life slowed down. We had the opportunity to have meals to get together, to read scripture without rushing, to pray together, to have a conversation, to, to, to ask the big questions of life, to reset our priorities. We could encourage patterns of prayer and conversation about God. But now as we come to an end of the COVID restrictions, as they are gradually lifted, what are we going to do? What rhythms of life will we return to? What are the rival kingdoms that tell us that, that life is all about us and our achievements? Those rivals that say that we're not good parents if we don't give our children every opportunity, if we don't let them explore every chance to, to live an amazing life. We're told that we're failures if our children are not well-rounded young people who excel in sports and academics and music and art and, and this or that. And they go to, we need to go to this vacation destination because, after all, that's what everybody else does. And so, and so we have to get busy to do this. We have this bucket list. The danger is that we just give a nod to Jesus, that we might even express enthusiasm for the church, but once we've read the Bible, once Sunday morning's over, well, it's back to the rat race of trying to keep up. But you know, it can even be that we think good Christians need to do more stuff for God. It's the pastor's, the theology professor's constant temptation to become a professional Christian, to be super busy all the time, even with theology and conferences or the latest essential book that everyone's talking about, to keep up with the best, to prepare sermons for other people and not take the time to develop a deep, fulfilling relationship with God. So the first rival is busyness. And the invitation is, the invitation is to seek first the kingdom. Jesus says that the this rocky ground listener, uh, that's the second rival, also hears the word and, and even receives it with joy. It's, it's, it's good news. And you know, it's, it's fascinating in this parable, of course, that, or in, in the context, in the um, gospel there, that there, there were so many people who wanted to hear Jesus that day that they almost pushed Jesus into the lake. He had to get into a boat so that people couldn't get too close. But in, in this part of the parable, the initial enthusiasm of the seed ends quickly. The soil is not very deep, and when the sun comes out, the plant withers. And Jesus explains, everything looks great until trouble, until affliction, or even persecution comes our way. And we see this when Jesus continues to preach on other occasions and, and explains the cost of discipleship, the call to, to carry our cross, to die to ourselves, the call to sacrificial love while the enthusiasm waned. Life with Jesus is supposed to be better than life without Jesus. So when life isn't better, well, Jesus simply has to go. In other words, a arrival to the kingdom of God is the mantra of the good life, is a painless, trouble-free, easygoing life. It has no cost. It's Instagrammable. It's what you and I deserve. Life is about you, and it's yours to enjoy. And the more enjoyment, the happier you'll be. 
But COVID-19 reminded us that life isn't easy. It's not all roses. In fact, rules about social distancing can be depressing. Isolation isn't present. Loneliness can haunt us like a specter. And coupled with the protests and the politicized response to, 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 to the pandemic, we realize how broken and fragile our world is and God can seem to be hidden. Well, while in and of itself this might seem to have little to do with the message of the kingdom of God explicitly, it is a sober reminder that we cannot expect life to be upbeat all the time. There are things like viruses in life that are simply beyond our control. There are troubles in the world. And as we come out of the pandemic restrictions, we are confronted by the question, how will we respond to the message of the kingdom of God? Are we prepared to face trouble or even persecution because of the kingdom, because of the demands for a Christ-centered life with what, what many in our society would say is, has rather unpopular ethical standards? Or will we instead opt for a pain-free, trouble-free life? As we have an opportunity to reset our lives and realign ourselves with the message of the kingdom of God, with its deep, radical call for integral repentance, will it be worth it? And so the second rival to the kingdom is the insistence on a good life, pain-free, no cost to me. Number three, well, remember the backdrop to Jesus' explanation is Isaiah's call and Israel's rejection for God's agenda for the world. And again, it was not that Israel was not religious. It wasn't that Israel no longer went to the temple or celebrated the feast and the fast. It's not that they conscientiously wanted nothing to do with God. Quite the opposite. In Isaiah chapter 1, it's clear that Israel was still bringing incense, still celebrating on the appropriate feast days. They were still spreading out their hands to God in prayer. In fact, Yahweh mentions that they, that they were making many prayers. But it was repulsive to God. He calls their gatherings a trampling of my courts. Their sacrifices, meaningless offerings. Their feasts are nothing less than a wearisome burden that Yahweh says, I hate them with all of my being. Wow, these are strong, startling, sober words. But Yahweh doesn't just complain about Israel. No, no, he patiently and plainly tells them why he's so upset. And then he invites them to repent in a powerful, staccato-like indictment, he says, Wash you, make yourselves clean, turn away, the, away your evil deeds out of my sight, stop doing wrong. And then he says, Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. And it's in this context that he says words that are so much more familiar to us, Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. Kingdom fruitfulness. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. And so it's rather astounding, but one of the rivals to the kingdom of God is religiosity itself. Religion, without the ethical outworking of a relationship of love with God and neighbor. And the temptation we face, the rival that, that will try to lure us away, 
as the COVID-19 restrictions are slowly lifted, is that we think it's all about, only about a building, only about public worship, whether on a Sunday morning or some other activity. But once we see the cost of discipleship and realize that following Jesus has a price, that solidarity with the marginalized is part of the New Testament kingdom discipleship, how many will say, mm, no thanks? When we realize it's not about being served, but about serving. And serving is, is often without anyone saying thank you. When we give and get nothing in return, slowly discouragement can set in, and our enthusiasm can wither pretty quick. Superficial religiosity is a rival to the kingdom of God and God-honoring fruitfulness. Number four. There's a, a fourth rival to the kingdom, fruitfulness. And in the parable, Jesus talks about the seed that is choked out by the weeds. And he then explains that the weeds are worry and anxiety. But particularly, he points out that the worry comes from the deceitfulness of wealth. This is the rival of a perspective that life is all about having and hoarding stuff and possessions and all that. Now, we need to be absolutely clear that wealth can be a gift. And I know many Christians who are extremely generous with their wealth. Wealthy Christians who support essential ministries around the world and who, without their generosity, these institutions and ministries could not survive. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He stresses the deceitfulness of wealth. It can be hard to pay attention to the message of the kingdom in a world that values wealth and judges people by what they possess and who's on the sunshine list. And as we walk again in the present-day temples of the shopping malls, all around us we see mannequins as icons of what the good life is supposed to look like. And these display cases replace the old stained-glass windows of cathedrals and recast a vision of contemporary saints that we are told we should emulate. And we are bombarded daily by creative advertising that's geared to buying the next thing. And so to support the demand for new stuff, advertisers create a need that we didn't even think we had until they showed it. And now we, we need the income to support that desired lifetime, a lifestyle. And so when the markets slide or our job suffers, worry and anxiety sets in and it can paralyze us. The generosity of the kingdom of God seems decidedly less exciting when compared to the glittering offerings of a culture that thrives on more stuff. Well, the coronavirus brought the economy to a screeching halt, and we were forced to live with less. But now, as we slowly move back to opening up the economy, the temptation will be to align ourselves once again with a consumer culture that is never satisfied, that never sleeps, that offers gratification at your fingertips, that always wants, that always needs, that always deserves more. Nevertheless, the culture of never enough, need, always need more, is nothing less than a lie. Jesus describes it as the deceitfulness of wealth. Deceitful because it simply isn't true that you need more to be happy. And it's a lie because we weren't created to be consumers, but rather stewards of God's gifts, modeling our lives on the generosity of the kingdom where there is enough for all. So yes, the rivals are many. Busyness, the pursuit of a pain-free good life, beautifully aesthetic religiosity, that doesn't want to get its hands dirty in the hard work of seeking justice. A consumer society that chokes out a kingdom lifestyle. But thankfully, 
There's also good soil that produces fruit as the message of the kingdom of God takes root and is understood. The fruit is a hundred times more, 60 times, or even, even 30. And so rather than seeing the parable of the sower simply as a call to read your Bible more, to show up in church, or, or as a rather depressing assessment of the way that we haven't been producing the right kind of fruits as we listen to sermons or read our Bibles so that we simply heap more guilt on ourselves, I suggest that Jesus is graciously offering us an opportunity to realign our lives with the message of the kingdom of God and to live in tune with God's purposes for the world. So where do we go from here? Well, very briefly, two main things. One, we need to remember our starting point. We start with the sower, with God, with his generous purposes in our lives. Yahweh is committed to fruitfulness. We read Isaiah 55. You know, that's why Yahweh sows seed with such extravagant generosity. He's not stingy. He's not tight-fisted. He is liberal in scattering the seed because he knows there will be fruit. If this is what Yahweh wants, this is what Yahweh is willing to do in your life and mine. He doesn't work against us. He works with us. And we can be sure that by aligning our lives to God's purposes as defined by the kingdom of God, we will have lives worth living. We will have fruitful lives that God's word will accomplish his desired goal and God will be celebrated. And if we're not sure what this looks like in the real life, go back to Jesus and the incarnation. Jesus clearly embodies the message of the kingdom. But secondly... God promises us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can discern life's realities, unmask the, the siren call of the pseudo-kingdoms, recognize their lies and their inability to offer what they promise, and realign our lives with God's kingdom once again. That is the work of the liturgy. Work, uh, word and sacrament remind us as they're guided by the Spirit of the story that we belong to, of the people we belong to, of the God that we belong to. And that's the point of Paul's discussion in Romans chapter 8. You know, amazingly, Paul starts again from a position of no condemnation. It's not about working your way to salvation, but by being more religious. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you less. That's the mystery of grace. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. And that is a liberating truth. But then as you know, God gives you everything that you need for the fruitful life. He gives us his word. His word, which is a road map, but it's also a light to find our way, as we heard in Psalm 19, 119. He, he, he gives us the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds so that that word of God, the message of the kingdom, becomes real to us. It transforms us. It redirects our desires to God so that we live lives of thankfulness. You see, it's only through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we can make progress in holy living. It is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we learn to unmask the lies. And we're reminded that the kingdom, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 14, the kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit.
And so what's absolutely amazing is that very same spirit, Paul says, that raised up Jesus from the dead is living in you. He gives you life. What defines you is not emptiness, not wilted, depressed, choked lives, not busyness. What, what defines you is a life of fruitfulness because you are united to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, and he's the first fruits. So the call is to be who you are, to remember why you're here. Well, from the exposition of Scripture, we now go to the Lord's table. And today, word and sacrament remind us that the story that shapes us is the story of the kingdom of God. This morning, we are weaned from drinking mud puddles of the rival kingdoms, and instead we drink deeply from the cup of salvation. We are invited to stop our busyness, invited to pause, and to let the good news of the kingdom impact our senses, our eyes, our touch, our taste, so that the gospel of the kingdom goes deep into our hearts. We are reminded that we are bought with a price, that our salvation cost Jesus, cost the Father something. At the table, the lies are shredded, they're ripped apart, and we see reality as it truly is as we take bread and wine into our hands again. Christ resets our perspective at the table. And yes, it's true, isn't it? We long to share the generosity of the table with one another again soon. We look forward to when we can do that. Be assured that there is a place reserved for you. It has your name on it because you are an heir of this kingdom. And in the meantime, remember that this is the banquet of the kingdom and that the best is yet to come, that nothing matters like the king and his kingdom and glorifying him. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, set our lives on fire with love to Christ and his kingdom. We thank you that you have shared with us the secret of the kingdom this morning and that you invite us to realign our lives with that message, with you, the gracious King. Help us to do that. And to you will be glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen.